7. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, it's page 955 in the Pew Bible right in front of you. I'll give you guys a second to turn there while I turn there as well. Man, it's been a good morning. You guys have a good morning so far? Everybody feeling blessed today? Amen. You know, church, there's a, a story is told of a little girl who boarded a plane for the very first time with her daddy. And after sitting in the cabin for a while, the little girl looked out her window and she exclaimed, Daddy, we're so high up that all the cars down there on the freeway look like ants. And her daddy moved over and looked out the window and after a few seconds said, Sweetheart, those are ants. We haven't taken off yet. You know, church, whenever I fly, I generally choose the aisle seat over the window seat. And it's not because I don't like the window seat. I'm not afraid of flying. It's just because I'm a little bit taller. And I don't like being all crammed in by the window. Uh, I like to have the flexibility of being in the aisle. You know what I'm saying? Any aisle seat people here today? Yeah. Now, however, I will say there is nothing quite like the view you get from 30,000 feet. To be able to uh, look out the window and see miles upon miles of, of mountains and fields and roadways and even the tops of clouds is absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. You see, viewing things from 30,000 feet provides just a different perspective on life that most of the time we're not able to enjoy. Well, this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, we're going to enjoy it from a 30,000-foot perspective, so to speak. In other words, we're going to fly over an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, touching base and seeing several topics along the way. You know, there's an old expression that says variety is the spice of life, right? Well, if you like variety in a sermon, you've come on the right day. Because this morning in today's text, there's a little something-something for everyone here today. There's something for those who are married. There's something for those who are single. There's something for those who have questions about divorce and separation. There's even something for those who struggle with just being content with your lot in life. You see, today's sermon is really about honoring God regardless of your relationship status. You know, most social media... Platforms, they have this option in the profile section to choose your relationship status. For example, you can choose single. You can choose in a relationship. You can choose engaged or married or separated or divorced or widowed. Or, it's complicated. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like, it's complicated. Well, if you were to choose a relationship status for the Corinthian church in regard to the Lord and to one another, that's the one you'd choose. It's complicated. You see, the Corinthian believers complicated, vastly complicated their relationship with God because of their own sin. You see, up to the, and those of you that have been on this journey with us, up to this point in, in Paul's letter, we've seen Paul address a series of sin issues within the church, including, but not limited to, division, arrogance, jealousy, a major sexual scandal, legal conflict, and even prostitution. And so needless to say... God's people, because remember, Paul's writing to God's people. He's not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to God's people here. God's people, we're not acting like God's people. Instead of living by God's righteous standards, they were living by the world's standards. Instead of imitating Christ, they were imitating the culture. Simply put, the Corinthian church was a mess from the inside out. However, before we judge them too quickly or, or too harshly, we'd be wise to consider our own state. Because, friends, the sad reality is that the same problems that plagued the church 2,000 years ago are the same problems that plague the church today. In fact, Pastor Jim Cimbala recently asked a question worth our consideration. He said, are we living in a day when instead of evangelizing the culture, people in the church are being evangelized by the culture? 
He, said, he goes on to say, I don't want that for us. I want to stay true to Jesus. Church, how many of you want to stay true to Jesus? Say, I do. I do, I do as well. In fact, that's why I entitled today's message, Staying True Where God Has You. Because in today's study, we're going to learn some principles for staying true to Jesus in the context of earthly relationships. So before we begin today's study, um, let's ask the Lord to soften our hearts to his word today. Father God, thank you for the privilege of opening up your word and uh, the opportunity to worship you today. And I pray, God, that I would get out of the way, that your Holy Spirit would speak through the power of your word, speak through me as you see fit, and uh, may people leave here closer to Jesus and, and, and staying more true to Jesus, truer to Jesus, than when they arrived. And all God's people said, Amen. So friends, the key to staying true to Jesus is walking in obedience to Jesus. That's kind of the, the end of the day takeaway here. You've got to walk in obedience to Jesus. In other words, you need to follow his righteous standards for living. And so found within today's passage are four areas we're called to do exactly that. And like I said, we're going to look at a whole chapter today. I, you won't be here for two hours, I promise, but maybe an hour and 45 to 50 minutes. All right? So anyway, uh, let's, let's hop right in. The very first area, uh, four areas we're called to, to, to stay true to Jesus. The first area is this, stay true in regard to sex. There it is, the word. Embrace it. Dave already said it like 150 times last week, so... Um, so we should be like accustomed to it. But anyway, stay true in regard to sex. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Let's, let's stop there. When I was youth pastor, every once in a while I'd host an activity called Ask Booter Anything. Now for those of you who don't know, Booter is my nickname. You could actually call me Booter. It really is fine with me. But anyway, uh, during this time, the teens would write down a question that they wanted to ask on a piece of paper, and I would fish through them and answer them in real time. And now the goal of this activity was to show the teens that our church is a safe place to ask questions, even if they're tough or awkward questions. In other words, I'd rather them hear it from God's word than hear it from the world, amen? Well, evidently, Paul did like a similar activity with the Corinthian believers, because right out of the gate, we learned that the Corinthian believers had written Paul a letter. Now, even though we don't have the original contents of their letter, we can learn a lot about it based upon what we see in this letter. You see, basically, the Corinthian believers had a lot of questions about Christian living, which Paul's actually going to spend really the rest of the book, or a good portion of the book, answering. And, of course, it begins with the hottest topic out there, sex. He begins by writing, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, in this context, Paul is speaking to those who are single. In essence, he's saying that if you're single, it's God's good plan for you to remain celibate. And if you're able to live as a single and celibate Christian, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's an honorable thing. However, if you cannot, which is most Christians, by the way, then God designed marriage as the means for meeting your sexual desires, which is also a good thing. So we're talking about two good things here, according to Paul. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You know, in today's world, we're seeing more and more smart devices in homes, right? There's smart door locks, there's smart doorbells, there's smart plugs, smart video cameras, and full-blown smart security systems. Now, the reason why more and more people are getting smart in safeguarding their homes is because there's great value in protecting who and what they love. For them, it's well worth the investment. Well, church, in many ways, God designed sex to be a safeguard for our marriages, for our lives. And those who recognize this reality are the smart ones. 
guys, this is so quiet in here. You're making it more awkward than it has to be, all right? Like, chillax, it's okay. It's okay, we're going on this journey together. But anyway, see, you're making me mess, mess up where I'm even adding my notes here, all right? But you see, the Corinthian culture, just like our culture today, they were obsessed with sex, obsessed with it. In fact, the Corinthian culture was hedonistic, which means they pursued sexual pleasure whenever they wanted, wherever they wanted, however they wanted, with whoever they wanted. And as you can imagine, this caused all sorts of problems, not just within the city, but these problems were creeping into the church. You see, in God's eyes, sex is a sacred gift. Again, Pastor Dave did a masterful job working through that last week with our church. It's a gift that's meant to be enjoyed only within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so in essence, because sexual temptation was so rampant, Paul encouraged men and women to pursue marriage to fulfill their sexual needs. Now just to be clear, all right, this is not an exhaustive study on marriage or, or sex for that matter. Paul is not teaching that you should get married only for the purposes of having sex, okay? His point was that sexual expression between one man and one woman in the context of marriage is a good God-honoring thing that serves as a safeguard against sexual immorality. It's God's way of protecting a home from the attacks of the enemy. Are you with me so far? Look what he goes on to say in verses 3 through 6. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. There's a story told of a, of a man who announced to his family that he was going to fast and pray. And little Susie, their five-year-old daughter, recently learned in church that fasting meant not eating. And so in a panic, she shouted, No, Daddy, you can't fast. You're going to die. And her daddy carefully explained to her that many men and women fasted during Bible times. And little Susie paused for a moment, and then with a flash of insight, she cried, yeah, and they're all dead. <laughs> Church, to fast is to temporarily give up satisfying a craving of the body in order to give special attention to God, to a spiritual need. And while fasting usually involves the giving up of food, that's not the only type of fasting we see in the Bible. In today's text, Paul describes a type of sexual fasting. It's an elective time when the husband and wife mutually agree to temporarily give up satisfying their sexual craving in order to seek God's intervention for a situation. Now, according to Paul, this is really the only time when deliberate celibacy should take place in a marriage. Why? Because even though neither party is going to die from sexual fasting, although men might think they're going to die, um, it won't take long. That was a joke, by the way. You can laugh. It's okay. It's, get it out of your systems, guys. Come on. All right? Um, it's okay. But, it, but it, if you fast in this area too long, it won't take long for temptation to run rampant. You see, the longer a married couple goes without meeting each other's meet, needs, the more at risk they are to succumb to Satan's attacks. It's for this reason that both the husband and wife must not deprive one another. Now again, this is, this is a, a, a weighty topic that requires, I mean, you could do a whole sermon series on it. This, remember, this is 30,000 foot approach today. Generally speaking, 
when it comes to just depriving one another and, and, and men and women, they have different needs, right? So generally speaking, men and women have different needs when it comes to fulfilling sexual desire. Men are more stimulated physically, women are more stimulated emotionally. And Paul's overarching point is that in a healthy marriage, both husbands and wives recognize one another's needs and operate with a spirit of selflessness. In other words, they put each other's needs ahead of their own. The husbands meet the needs of their wives, wives meet the needs of their husbands. Ephesians 5.21 says it best. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so when both parties are operating according to this principle, that's when God is honored and marriages flourish. On the other hand, when one or both parties operate selfishly, when one or both parties deprive one another of meeting their needs, that's when temptation and sin creeps in and marriages break down. And so all this to say, staying true to Jesus in regard to sex requires submission and selflessness, even if your partner is not being submission, submissive and selfless. You, can't, you know what I'm saying? Like Two wrongs don't make a right. Someone's got to break, and if both of you break at the same time, things work out perfectly. But when one party's out, whenever sin gets introduced into a marriage, when selfishness gets introduced, that's when things go awry. Are you with me? Good job. This leads us to the second area. Take a deep breath, we're done, okay, with sex. Um, second area, stay true in regard to singleness. In regard to singleness. We talk, kind of talked about marriage a little bit, the marriage bed, now we're going to talk about singleness. Look at verses 7 through 9. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, over the last few years, the online dating market in the U.S. has, been, has seen constant significant growth. In fact, in 2022, uh, they said that 57.44 million online dating, there were 57.44 million online dating users in the continental United States. That's 55, or 57, I can't, whatever, 60,000 million people, single people, who are single ready to mingle online right now, okay? So if you got, you're looking for that partner, maybe you could find them online. And there's nothing wrong with trying to find a potential spouse. However, some people some singles, they're so obsessed with finding the one that it consumes their lives. They're so focused on their marital future that they miss out on making the most of the present. They're so bent on getting married, they fail to see the benefits of singleness. You see, Paul didn't mince words when he said it is good for them to remain single. Again, good to get married, good to pursue marriage. Paul ain't knocking that, but he's saying, hey, listen, it's, it's good. Singleness is a good thing, too. Why? Because he recognized something that many people tend to forget, that singleness is a gift from God. And those who view, view it as such put themselves in a very unique position to be used by God uh, for his kingdom purposes. Tony Evans describes a biblical view of singleness this way. He says, A kingdom single is an unmarried Christian who is committed to fully and freely maximizing his or her life under the rule and lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, you commit to maximizing your present situation for the glory of God. Now, church, undoubtedly, there are unique struggles that come with being single. There's, there is. And Paul isn't downplaying this reality. However, on the flip side, there's also some unique advantages. 
In the second half of this chapter, Paul provides at least four areas where singles, generally speaking, have the advantage in the Christian life. So let's just look at a few of them. Uh, we're going to flip over to verse 25 because we're going to look at the second half of this chapter and then come back. So the first area where singles, generally speaking, have the advantages in times of persecution. Look at verses 25 through 27. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Many of you might remember it in the movie The Sound of Music. Uh, George von Trapp was ordered to report to a German naval base uh, to accept a commission with the Nazis. And being strongly opposed to the Nazi ideology, the captain had no choice but to sneak his entire family uh, of seven, plus his wife, out of Austria. And as a result, this very tense and stressful escape ensued. Of course, what made it so intense was that the captain wasn't just concerned with his own well-being. That would have been difficult enough, right? But he was concerned with the well-being of eight other people. In other words, the weight of a distressing situation was amplified. Well, the phrase present distress is likely a general reference to the opposition or antagonism that believers face living in an unbelieving world. However, during the time of this letter, countless Christians had already been arrested and beaten and imprisoned and even martyred for their faith. And so therefore, it's quite possible that Paul had a more specific distress in mind. After all, Roman persecution under Nero was right around the corner. Well, in either case, Paul's point is that even though the threat of persecution is difficult for everyone, again, not downplaying persecution if you're single or married, it's, the reality is it's only amplified when you're married. Why? Because like Captain Von Trapp, you got more people to worry about than just yourself. So Paul said, just consider that as you are single and, and looking for a partner. Number two, another area, in everyday affairs. Look at verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed marries, woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Whenever my wife and I lead a couple through premarital counseling, my wife and I always make sure to remind them of an important reality. Namely, that, the mar that marriage has unique challenges because uh, it's the union of two sinful people. You're bringing one sinful person who's used to doing life on their own, in their own sin, uh, you know, their, their entire known life, and you got another person living the same way, and then you're, you're bringing them together, you're bringing sin together. You're taking, it's not just your sin you have to worry, it's like horsepower. You know how like you add a horse to it and all of a sudden you're able to go a lot faster? It's kind of the same deal with sin. Once you add more sin into the mix, it just think, makes things more complicated. One commentator noted, he said, the two become one, but they're still two personalities, two distinct people with their own likes and dislikes, their own characteristics, emotions, temperance, and wills. Each partner has some degree of anger, selfishness, dishonesty, pride, forgetfulness, and thoughtlessness. Marriage involves conflicts, demands, hardships, sacrifices, and adjustments that singleness does not. Now, just to be clear, again, Paul isn't knocking marriage here. Marriage is God's good plan for most people. He's simply pointing out the undeniable reality that marriage is a hard thing. I mean, the divorce rate is 50%, right? It takes a lot of hard work to make a marriage work. And likewise, Paul isn't saying that singleness doesn't have its own troubles. I want to be clear on that. Again, the practical point is that where sin is multiplied, so too are everyday troubles. This brings us to number three. Third area, in time management. Look at verses 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as, as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Again, 30,000-foot view perspective. What's Paul getting at here? Well, before I was married, I was able to do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted because it was just me, myself, and I. I was able to use my time as I saw fit. I was able to say yes to the things I wanted to say yes to. I was able to say no to the things I wanted to say no to. There was nothing holding me back. However, after getting married and having children, I'm no longer able to operate with that mindset. Why? Not because my wife or kids hold me back. It's just I have other people in my life I have to consider. I have other responsibilities I did not have before. And so, church, one of the advantages of singleness is that your time is generally your own, which gives you the ability to say yes to God more freely. You can more freely say yes to going on that missions trip or to embracing a ministry opportunity or to fly across seas for a study abroad program or to serve on a team. See, as Paul points out, our time on earth is fleeting, which means our opportunities for making a kingdom impact are limited. And so married couples have to navigate the challenges of dividing their time between earthly matters and kingdom matters. Singles, on the other hand, are in a unique position to maximize their time for the Lord because they're able to, focus, they're able to in theory, focus more time on the Lord. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Now just to be clear, married couples, if you're married, most of you probably married in this room today, you're not off the hook. This isn't Paul's excuse for you to, to not say yes to the Lord. Let me be clear on that. The reality is, like, you just have to work hard, harder at saying yes to God. But God still wants you to say yes when he calls you. The practical reality is, is that singles just have the advantage in this area. And then in the last area, in overall devotion. Look at verses 32 to 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the married or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. And, uh, excuse me, the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided attention to the Lord. You know, church, sometimes, those of you who have kids, you could probably relate to this. Sometimes when I'm trying to get my kids undivided attention, I'll stand right in front of them and I'll say, look me in the eyes and nod your head. Like this, right? Uh, because why? There's a lot of things that distract my kiddos when, when they should give their father or their undivided attention. There's just a lot of things happening that might kind of distract them and get them off course. Well, the same is true whether you're married or single. All believers are called to give God the Father their undivided attention. However, this becomes more challenging feat when you're married. Why? Again, because a married believer is preoccupied with meeting the needs of their spouse and children. Singles, on the other hand, have fewer hindrances and more advantages when it comes to giving God their undivided attention. They're in a better position to be devoted without distraction. Now, I want to be clear on this as well. In either case, Paul's not putting on a guilt trip here. He's not guilting married believers for having divided interests, nor is he guilting single believers into doing more for the Lord. So, so like, if you're here and, and uh, you see somebody that's single in our midst, don't go up to them and say, well, you know, you could, you're just in a better position to do more for the Lord than I am. 
So I want to encourage you to go ahead and do that. No, that's stupid, all right? <laughs> and, and super unchristian um, to do that. So don't do that. Um, but it's, again, it's just a matter of practicality. Simply put, there's less holding back a single believer from full devotion from the Lord than there is a married believer. I like what Tony Evans said. He actually illustrated it nicely. He said, look it, Adam was consumed with his calling until God gave him Eve. Likewise, every Christian single should maximize the freedom of his or her single status until God brings a mate. It is okay to have the desire for a mate. It is not okay to allow the desire to become a spiritual distraction. And I would add, it's not okay to allow your marriage to become a spiritual distraction either. But again, God calls us to pour into our marriage while at the same time pouring into our relationship with him. It just becomes a little bit more challenging when you're married. And so church, all this to say, staying true to Jesus in regard to singleness or marriage means fully embracing where he has you today. Paul ends this chapter by reiterating that there's no right or wrong when it comes to your relationship status. What's more important is using your relationship status, status for the glory of the Lord. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Singles, you with me? Oh, wow. <laughs> I am not feeling the love this morning from the singles in the room. Uh, sorry. Moving on. This leads us to the third area. Staying true in regard to separation. To separation. Look, now we're going to go backwards. We're going to look at verses 10 through 16. Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you, you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Church, a few weeks ago, my family and I were on a, we went on a road trip to Michigan to go visit some other family members which of course means we spend a considerable amount of time driving on the highway, mostly 80. 80 is like long, and it's the worst. But anyway, generally speaking, Butash family road trips are pretty smooth. In fact, the only time when things get dicey is when someone has to go to the bathroom or someone is hungry. And all of a sudden, the aura changes in the van. It's like this black cloud happens. And once one person starts complaining, everyone starts complaining. And that's when we frantically start looking for the closest exit ramp possible. In other words, the moment when a favorable situation turns unfavorable, we're looking for a way out. Church, there are many couples who treat their marriages the same way. When things are going smooth, they make great progress. However, the moment when they find themselves in an unfavorable situation, instead of pressing on, they look for an exit ramp. They look for a way out. The Apostle Paul told the married Christians in Corinth and us, don't divorce each other. When problems arise, don't divorce each other. He said, instead, do everything you can to work it out. After all, that, that's what making marriage vows is all about. 
I've led enough weddings to know, you know, when, when a couple says, I do or I will, they're making this covenant. They're making this agreement, this promise. Typically, they promise to be each other's spouse, to have and to hold from that day forward for better or what? Worse. For richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish and to pledge themselves truly until death do they part. Sadly, just, there's many married couples, even Christian couples, who bask when things are better, but want to bail when things get worse. And listen, I'm not trying to make light of marital problems. I'm just saying that's a reality, right? We're adults here. Things happen. And Paul is, is warning us against this mentality. Why? Because God is pro-marriage. God's pro-marriage. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, what, God, there, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, church, God doesn't want married believers looking for off-ramps when things get hard. He wants married believers to do everything they can to stay the course and keep moving forward. In this specific case, this includes being in a marriage where you might be a believer and your spouse is not. Not only do you have the opportunity to share the gospel with an unbelieving spouse, but God's special blessing is going to cover you, according to Paul. Like, hey, listen, if you can't, just stick it out. Because you don't know how, I know it's difficult, but you just don't know how God is going to work in your midst. Now, on a side note, if you're a single believer here today, Paul says in verse 39 that you should only marry another like-minded believer. Why? Because this is going to help avoid some of the struggles that come with a spiritually mixed marriage. But nevertheless, if, if, if you find yourself in that situation today, Paul says, hey, listen, stick it out. Stick it out. Now, with that being said, there are certain instances when the Lord does permit divorce. Specifically, if you're married to an unbeliever and they abandon you, as we see in today's text, or as Jesus mentions in Matthew 19, uh, when sexual immorality or adultery takes place. However, just because the Lord permits divorce in cer certain situations doesn't mean we have to use that permission. Again, the Lord is pro-marriage, and he is glorified through marital recon reconciliation, not separation. Now look, admittedly, the topic of divorce merits much more time than we have to give it today. And so as we consider it from a 30,000-foot perspective, here's the bottom line. Staying true to Jesus means doing everything you can to fight for your marriage every single day. This should be the posture of every single Christian couple. Now, is, is divorce the unforgivable sin? Of course not. No. God is full of mercy and grace. However, confession and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration must always be the first and preferred option. Amen? Amen? Thank you. You guys... Drink, give you some soda before you arrive in the morning next time. All right. And this leads us to the fourth area. Stay true in regard to service, verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, so don't become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each one was called, let him remain there with God. All right, so in our backyard, 
Okay, this is the last point today, so just stay with me. But in our backyard, we have this small, this small raised garden bed. And in the springtime, my wife and I planted all types of seeds in the soil. And by my wife and I, of course, I mean my wife planted seeds in the soil. I watched. But anyway, tomato seeds, corn seeds, zucchini seeds, kohlrabi seeds, and lettuce seeds. We've got a bunch of seeds. Now, here we are a few months later, and these very same seeds have blossomed into these full-blown veg vegetables in the exact same spot where they planted them, where we planted them, where she planted them. <laughs> in other words, we didn't plant, she didn't plant seeds in the backyard, only to find the plants blooming in the front yard. They bloomed where they were planted. Church, God wants his people to bloom where they're planted. That's, that's really what Paul's getting at here in this chunk of verses. If you're married, he wants you to bloom in your marriage. If you're single, he wants you to bloom in your singleness. If you're considering divorce, he wants you to bloom in fighting for restoration. Instead of trying to change your circumstances, God wants you to serve him faithfully in the midst of your circumstances. You know, there are many believers who are so, so concerned about what they could be doing for God that they're actually missing out on the opportunities that God has literally laid right in front of them today. There are many believers who are trying to change their present situation instead of being content in their present situation. Paul's overarching point is that God wants believers to stay true wherever he has you and trust him with the rest. After all, God can care for us better than we can care for ourselves. He knows our needs better than we do. And he has our best interests in mind. Therefore, if we choose to fully embrace where he has us today, church, listen, we can be sure he's going to take care of our tomorrow. I love what Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. And so as I prepare to close, or land the plane, so to speak, since we're looking at it from a 30,000-foot perspective, I'm just going to ask you a question, something for you to consider between you and God. Are you staying true where God has you? Are you staying true to Jesus in your marriage? Are you staying true to Jesus in your singleness? Are you staying true to Jesus in whatever earthly circumstance he's put you in? If not, let me encourage you to make that commitment today. Of course, the first step in, in staying true to Jesus is making sure you have a relationship with him, right? That's where it all begins for every believer, whoever believed. It begins with having a relationship. In other words, you need to make sure that you're saved. Everything I talked about this morning, that's, that's principles for believers to apply to their lives. And if you're not a believer, still good principles to apply, but this is the first step in staying true to Jesus. Friend, 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and die on a cross, taking the punishment for your sins and my sins upon himself. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, he provided a way for you to receive permanent forgiveness for your sins and be saved and have eternal life. It's a beautiful thing that we never want to forget, church. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Perhaps you came in today and you're listening to me talk, and I get that a lot of what I talked about today is countercultural. I admit that. It's very unpopular, but it's the truth. We preach the truth of God's word here. And maybe, maybe you're sitting and you're kind of listening to this, and you're like, wow, I've never heard it put that way before. This is making sense to me or whatever. I'm glad that's making sense to you, but maybe, maybe you came in this morning uh, and you just don't know Jesus. 
You don't have a relationship with him. You know, you wandered in, you stumbled in because you, maybe you're looking for something, but you just don't know what that thing is. I'm telling you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We sang a song about it earlier. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over everything. Listen, Jesus wants to be your Savior. He died for you. He wants to welcome you into his family. And then, once you're in his family, he's going to give you the power to start living for him, to apply some of these principles I talked about to your life. He's going to give you that power. But it begins with knowing him first. And so, friend, if you want to be saved, if you want to become a child of God and start living your life for Jesus, all you must do is repent of your sins, asking God to forgive you, and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Believe what he did on that cross 2,000 years ago is suffice to save you for your sins. Trust that his death and resurrection is enough. Now, if you'd like more information about what it means to believe in Christ, what it means to receive him, you can mark it on your Connect slip. You can come speak with me after the service. You can grab an information packet right here in front of the, the pulpit. It's got, we have the Gospel of John and uh, a book that just has questions in there that helps answer some of the questions about Christianity. But let me encourage you, do not leave here without having the assurance of eternal life. Amen? But at this time, I'd like to invite the praise team forward. We're going to close in, in uh, a responsive song, and let me pray over you guys one more time. Oh, also, while the praise team's coming forward, if you're part of the prayer team, you guys can come forward as well and just hang out up front. If you guys need prayer after the service, prayer team should be up front here, and they'll pray over you uh, before you leave here. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your word today. Thank you, God, for the truth of your word, God, and the fact that at the end of the day, God, you, just, you desire faithfulness from your people. Lord, help us to stay true to Jesus in our marriages, in our singleness. For those of us that are experiencing just difficulties in our marriage, God, help us to keep fighting. Lord, we admit that in our own flesh, it's just we just want to give up. We want to find that exit when things get tough. God, help us not to do that today. Lord, help us to be content with our place in life today and trust you with our tomorrow. And all God's people said, amen. amen.